Our key verse today comes to us from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Today we want to talk about the important theme of the doctrine of the fall that Genesis chapter 3 reveals to us. As you read through this chapter of Genesis chapter 3, there's this verse that you come to that you find so many important truths, um, explanations, gospel glimpses that Genesis chapter 3 introduces you to. Each of these is helpful and important even as you seek to follow Jesus um, the backstory of the fall in Genesis 3 is essential to understanding your walk with him. We've entitled, as Michael said before, this series, Graves to Gardens, because the Bible paints this awesome picture of, of our God and how he takes the most tragic of scenes, the fall of mankind into sin and all the painful consequences that came with it, and he brings beautiful things out of it. He takes our graveyards and he turns them into gardens. So for the next six weeks or so, we're going to look at some of these tools, some of the how-tos of, well, how does God do that? Uh, maybe he uses things like covenants to be allow us to relate to him. Maybe he uses election or security or grace. All of these tools that God uses to take our graves and turn them into gardens. But before we get to gardens, we have to start with a grave. We have to start with the ugly side of this because the Bible doesn't let you just skip over the ugly parts and just go to all the good stuff. You need to embrace the bad stuff too. And that's why Genesis 3 is important because the song that we sang a few moments ago that yes, he does turn mourning to dancing and beauty to ashes and, and those kind of things. But we need to just pause for a second and think about the fact that in the world and in particular in our lives, there's mourning. And there are ashes, and there's shame, and there's bones, and there are seas, and there are hard things, there are broken things, there are things that ought not to be, and we have to embrace those first, because I can appreciate a garden. I love lots of gardens, especially, I can't grow a garden, but, but if you have a beautiful garden, I appreciate that about you and what you were able to do with that, but you appreciate a garden more when you see what it was before. When you look at the mess that something was, but then all of a sudden you see how it's turned into something beautiful. There is a depth and an appreciation that needs to be gained there. And so we're going to look at no, numerous ways in which God does that. But I wanted to start today by just going to the grave. Going to the place where death enters the picture. Where death, physical, spiritual, enters into the equation of our relationship with God. And so... We're going to look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible there, I would invite you to open to Genesis 3. We're going to read that chapter in just a moment. And I don't have to tell you, though, if you have to say, hey, Genesis 3 is where the bad news part of the story enters into the world. And I don't think that you'd be surprised to realize that the world is a pretty broken, messed up place. Countless examples could be shared here. But this one example stood out to me this week in a... Uh, funny way, I guess. And the headline of the article simply said this, zoo removes potty-mouthed parrots for cursing at visitors. 
Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but uh, there was these parrots. A British wildlife sanctuary was forced to separate five parrots who wouldn't stop swearing at the visitors. Keepers say the birds kept encouraging each other to to curse and had to be moved from the main outdoor uh, aviary. Their names were Billy, Eric, Tyson, Jade, and Elsie. And they were removed this week after these reports came to them. Um, And they had recently been donated to the Wildlife Center's colony of 200 African gray parrots in August and were put in quarantine together and quickly overwhelmed the staff with their naughty language. Um, The chief executive said this, We are quite used to parrots swearing, but we've never had five at the same time. And most parrots clam up when you put them outside, but these parrots seem to relish the opportunity to curse at their guests. And so um, even the parrots are messed up. How about that? So um, we talk about ourselves, but it's more fun to talk about our parrots. And so, because where did those parrots learn to talk like that? They hung out with us, right? And so, so where does that come from? Why is our world like this? Why do we treat one another in such awful ways? Why do we do so many terrible things? And why do so many just terrible things just happen in our world? Well, that's a great philosophical question, but the Bible begins its answer to those questions with Genesis 3. Before God comes and says it's anything that you've done, he just wants you to understand that you live in a world that is messed up. It isn't what it was supposed to be. And so read with me Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read this entire chapter because I think in order to appreciate the grave from which we are, are transformed into a garden... I think it's important to pause and just consider um, the many things that this chapter introduces to the story of God's work in your life and in the world. Genesis 3.1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, and God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it should bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and, the east of the, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. A beautiful and good creation corrupted. An enemy that is active and crafty and hateful of all that God is and that God has made. In pride, a humanity that too quickly doubts and rebels against its God. Sin that brings shame and separation and suffering. A God who disciplines, but a God who also cares and begins to seek out his rebellious children. There is much in Genesis 3 that you need to understand if you're even going to begin to understand the rest of the Bible. And so pay close attention. There are three or four things that we're going to highlight here today about why this chapter, why this story matters to your walk with the Lord today. But I want you to understand this simple theme. It's just the simple four words that you are fallen, but you are fought for. And so as you think about why does the fall matter to my faith, it's because you are fallen in sin, but you are also fought for. God doesn't leave you as just an abandoned garden, but he comes to you, he sees your messed up state, and he begins to fight for you. So understand that you are fallen, but you are fought for. And so based on that thought, I would simply like for you to consider with me why Genesis 3 is such an important part of your faith story, one that ought not to be ignored because it's uncomfortable and we don't like the consequences and the thoughts of it, but simply to be embraced for what it is to allow God to work through that story in our life. And so number one is this. Genesis 3 is a key part of your faith story because it explains the darkness that blankets the world and dwells in your hearts. It explains the darkness that blankets the world in which you live and also dwells within your own hearts. We all try to make sense of the evil and random junk that happens in our worlds. We live in a culture that conditions us to expect comfort and to be able to control everything. But the world is not a comfortable place and it can't be controlled as much as we think it we can in our arrogance. 
Our expectations are key. So if I come to the world expecting it to treat me well, for me to be comfortable and to control everything, my expectations are continually going to bump up against the reality, the futility, and the frustration of the world's. If I expect all to be easy and controllable, I am setting myself up for a ton of frustration in my life. But Genesis 3 introduces the curse, the brokenness, that shows us that the goodness of creation, it's still there, but it is very tainted. And so you will experience moments of beauty and greatness, but always mixed with ugliness and, and confusion. It brings frustration into our life. It adds relational tensions, as you saw that Adam and Eve very quickly turned on each other when sin enters the picture. Experiences that are full of pain, an enemy that antagonizes. The Bible has a word for this in the book of Romans. It's the word groaning. And maybe you've lived in this world long enough to, to groan in your soul, to see the brokenness, to see the worst that this world has to offer. And to just feel the groan of your soul to realize it's not supposed to be like this. Romans 8, Paul says this about the creation around us and the pain of the brokenness in the world in which you and I were born into. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits an eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggest, subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God is doing these things in his own people, but creation reaps the benefit of this new earth, this new heaven, this new earth that God will make for us. And finally, in verse 22, 23, Paul says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have everything that God has promised us so far, but we still groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You live in a world that is broken and fallen, and yes, there is much good. I don't want it to be all doom and gloom, but you live in a world and, and, and how do you make sense of all the chaos, the brokenness, the ugliness of this world that makes our souls groan when you just think of it and you hear it and you watch it and you take part in it. There's just a groaning of creation. There's a groaning of the soul. And Paul would say that's just because of Genesis 3. The world is a fallen, broken place. And so sometimes when you think, well, why did that happen? I don't know. We just live in a fallen, broken world and we groan. But what is he trying to do? He wants that groaning not to just despair us. He wants us to call us to lift our eyes and, and to look for something, to look for redemption. Because that's the whole point of the groaning is to say, there's got to be something better. And it drives us to look towards heaven. So not only is creation messed up and, and does it groan, but I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes the darkness is inside of your own soul too. That sometimes you find yourself being just as messed up as the world in which you see around you. The mess is not just out there, it's in here. And I, I think if we're honest, we all know the struggle to do right in our own lives. Most of us hold other people to a pretty high standard. 
But if we apply that same standard to ourselves, we find ourselves, I don't control my tongue like I should. I don't control my emotions or my anger or, or thoughts like I should. There's just things that I, I think I should be this, but how often do we fall short of that? Why is that? Well, Genesis 3 speaks into that. And Paul in the chapter just before in Romans chapter 7 just reflects on his own experience with, with knowing the good that God gives the law and his own inability to live up to that standard and how that just frustrates him. Listen to what he says in Romans seven fourteen and following. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I am sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Ever find yourself at the end of the day laying your head on your pillow and that's your thought? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I do something there? And you just think, there's these good things I know I should do, but I don't do them. The very things I hate, I do. But not only that, not only if now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, the standard is good. It's a good standard to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is a good standard. But when I don't do it, I agree with it. I'm agreeing that, oh, I should have been that. So now it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my, in my flesh and my fallenness. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So there's this dual thing. I see the things I don't want to do. I find myself drawn to them and I do them. And I see the things that I do want to do, but I don't have the ability to do them. For I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And he finishes the chapter in verse 24 with simply this statement. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so you look at creation's groaning. What's God's purpose for that? It's to drive us to look above that. And Paul's own wrestling with his own soul, with his own ability to be good. What's that meant to do? It's meant to create this, I can't do this myself. And his, he answers the question with the picture of the Redeemer that we need. When he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so there's this picture that, that simply gives us and explains the darkness around me and within me that Genesis 3 helps me to understand. And so I love the beautiful garden of my life. I love the fact that God could make, make good things out of my life. But I need to start with the ugly places in my life and to acknowledge that, to groan, to, to feel the wretchedness sometimes of, oh God, I'm not what I should be. The world is not what it should be. And to take my eyes off of myself and to look to the one who is bigger than and above it all, the one who is fighting for my soul and for your soul. And so Genesis 3 explains the darkness around me and within me. But a second thing I want you to see on top of that is, is this. It also helps us to understand how we experience temptation and sin in our own lives. I think Genesis 3 kind of takes us inside. Just, okay, this is why the brokenness continues, right? It's a mess out there and it's a mess in here. But how did I get there? Well, Genesis 3 gives us this, this unique glimpse, this intentional detail into how Satan worked in Eve's mind in her life. It's a pattern that he uses not just in Genesis 3, but in all of our lives. Her experience is one that we can probably all relate to, right? 
He plays on her fleshly desires, her passions. It tasted good, the text said. Her visual cravings, it looked good. She wanted that in her social position, that I can be wise like God. I don't have to be beneath God. I can be like God. And so it played on that. And so Satan overpromises, uh, and he delivers. Nowhere does it say that the, that, the, that the fruit tasted bad. I think it was really, really good fruit, because that's what Satan does. He promises pleasure. He promises front-end um, satisfaction, pleasure, and that's what he does. But what does he do? He hides the price tag. And you don't realize until it's too late that, oh, it tasted good. It was a good experience, whatever. It felt good in the moment. But the price tag, oh, the price tag is high. I don't know if you've ever been called by a telemarketer. I'm sure you all have. Probably you've been called during church service. Your cell phone's rung and, and someone is trying to sell you something. And I've never had a telemarketer call and say, hey, for, I, 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 this is Mr. Reynolds. Um, you need to give me $1,000 and then I'm going to tell you why. No, they don't start that way, do they? They start with, hey, you could be laying on a beach in some beautiful place. You could be doing, experiencing all these wonderful things. Oh, by the way, it's only for 24 years of your children's college education fund, whatever it is, um, it, they put the price tag at the back, right? That's always at the end, once they've got you on the hook. And that's exactly what Satan does. He doesn't talk about the price tag. He talks about the front-end pleasure and good things that, that will come, and he delivers them. But there's the backside of that, where there is a price to be paid that he never wants you to see. John, in his gospel in 1 John chapter 2, summarizes it this way when he says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here's where he goes back to the story of Genesis 3 and he applies it to our life. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, I just want you to note as you read that, uh, if you went back to verse 15, just those key phrases that what is it that makes the difference between the person who, who does what the world wants you to do or the person who does what the Lord wants you to do? And it's the love of the world or the love of the Father. Those two things compete against each other. And if I love the world, I will do what the world wants me to do. If I love the Father, I will do what the Father wants me to do. That my obedience follows what I love. And so toward the end of his life, Paul would sadly write these words about a, a fellow servant, a friend who had been with him through ministry, many ministry experiences. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he writes this about Demas. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He abandoned him. He left the work of the ministry. Why? Because he loved the world. He loved what the world had to offer him more than he loved maybe the hardships of, of staying in the ministry with Paul. And so he left. He quit. You see, worldliness, whether it's Eve, whether it's you or me, at its core is simply a matter of the heart. If your heart is captured by the world, you will love the things of the world. If your heart is captured by the love of God, you will be drawn to him and the things of, of God. And the only way that our hearts can be transformed so that we love God is by the supernatural work of, of, of new birth, of new life that he brings to us. And so he shows us that we must choose our love. Who do I love most? 
And then I must maintain that choice because you either love the world or you love the Father. You don't love them both. You can't love them both. But you must manage that decision. So once you've made that decision, you must fight to maintain your choice against the current of the world. When Paul says, do not love, or John, excuse me, says, do not love, it's an it's imperative, a present imperative, which means nothing to you except to say it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time decision. It is an ongoing daily decision that you must manage. He uses the word love. It's the Greek word, Greek word for agape, which means it's not, a, it's not a feeling. It's a commitment to the decision I make to love God or to love the world. Um, I make that decision and I manage it from that point on. And the only way that I can fight the love of the world is to maintain and to grow in the love of the Father. It does not happen because I just think, well, I feel guilty if I don't do it. That's never going to convince you to do the right thing. What's really going to transform your life and to bring a garden out of the grave is that you love God. That you love him as your father. You love him as your creator. You love him as your redeemer. I was reading a thing, and I love this sermon title, uh, by a guy who was a Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers. And he had a sermon called this, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What does he mean by that? That when you have a new affection for the Lord, it tends to expel things that don't fit in the circle of, this is what it looks like to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it expels things that don't fit. And so what is the world? He says, don't love the world. Well, the, wor the word world is used 185 times in the New Testament. John uses it 105 times between his gospels and his epistle, his epistle and the book of Revelation. It originally meant simply order. It's like the, I think the universe, that the world around us is, is an organized, and it talks about how it's a well-ordered ornament by God. In fact, our word cosmetics comes from the word that we, cosmos, right? Cosmic, right? Uh, cosmetic, right? So when you apply cosmetics, you're attempting to bring some order, right? I won't say to the chaos, but you're bringing some order, right? Because I won't want to go there, right? Um, but it's that idea of bringing order to something. And so that's not what John's really talking about when he talks about the world. John also uses the word world to, re <clears throat> to refer to the evil organized system under Satan's control, which operates through unbelieving people who are God's enemies. He writes in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see, Jesus spoke of the world hating both him and those who follow him. It operates on the basis of ungodly thoughts, attitudes, motives, values, and goals. They love the world system. They do not love God, and so their lives show that. And so when John says that we are not to love the things of the world, he does not mean that you must hate your house and your car, although you may hate your house and car some days when they don't treat you right. But rather, he elaborates on those things in verse, chapter 2, verse 16, when he says, The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. In other words, worldliness is a primarily an attitude that is motivated, motivated by wrong desires and the wrongful promotion of self. If you read your chapter in Core 52, the word he drilled down on was the word pride, wasn't it? Verse 16 simply explains that. So let me just talk with you 
just summarize those things really quickly because it's exactly what happens to Jesus in, John, in Luke chapter 4. If you go to Luke 4 and read the temptation of Jesus, you find the same thing that, that he did with Eve. He tries with Jesus, and John says he's still trying to do with us. He's applying, appealing, excuse me, to the lust of the flesh. What is that? Lust refers to a strong desire or impulse. It's almost always used in a negative sense. And the flesh that he used, talks about there is our fallen nature uh, that comes because we're separated from God. And so the lust of the flesh includes any raw, strong desire or inclination of our fallen nature, including sexual sins, but a whole host of other things as well. And so many natural desires are very legitimate, right? You are created to desire things because you're like God. God desires things. And they are legitimate if they are kept under control and used in the sphere for which God designed them. The desires for food or companionship or sex or security are legitimate when we keep them within God's limits. And when we do not allow them to usurp his rightful place in our hearts. But they become sinful when we seek to fulfill them in unselfish and ungodly ways. So Satan applied the lust of the flesh, right? But he also applied to the lust of the eyes. This term points to the sinful desires of greed and covetousness. To want that which you do not have, but which others may have. It also refers to the desires that stem from false or superficial values. Through our eyes, the world appeals to, to us to find satisfaction in superficial ways. But we know in the back of our mind, this will never really satisfy me. Buy this bigger thing. Have this newer, nicer thing. Find a, a beautiful woman or a handsome man and you'll be satisfied. Get the perfect job and have plenty of money and all your inner longings will be quenched is the promise of the lust of the eyes. But if you've lived long enough, you know that it never satisfies in the end. And finally, the boastful pride of life that he talks about. With the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, it's talking about things that you do not have but the boastful pride of life refers to the sinful pride that we get over what we do have. It's our talents or our possessions or, or this or that that we do possess. It is the desire to be better than others so that you can glory in yourself and your accomplishments. Now, there's a proper sense, again, of doing your best that is a good thing doing your best in school or in athletics or at work in order to be a good steward of God's gifts and to bring him glory is a good and healthy thing. But it's easy to forget that, you gave, that he gave you everything that you have and you start to boast in your own achievements and possessions as if you attained these things by your own wisdom, skill, and ability. It's you, not him, who is blessing you with all this stuff. And so he calls us to stop and think, well, how did Satan work in Eve's life? How did Satan work in Luke chapter four in Jesus when he tried to tempt Jesus up? How does Satan still work in our life? He appeals to those same things. And so Genesis three is helpful to think, okay, the world is a messed up place and I can either choose to just jump into it, swim with the mess, or I can choose to strive with the Lord's help to rise above it, to be something different in a world that is all kinds of messed up. And so I have two things left, and I'm just simply basically going to put them on the screen. I want you to think about them with me. You see, because of what we've just looked at, because of the way that Satan is always trying to trip you up through your lusts and through um, just the boastful things that he wants you to focus on, Genesis 3 is part of your faith story number three. 
because I think it simply calls us to examine our own thoughts towards God. It calls us to stop and examine our own thoughts towards God. What did Satan do with Eve? He came to her and began to get her to doubt who God was, God's intentions, God's heart for her, God's words, um, and he began to stir up discontent with God, maybe anger, disapproval, disappointment with God. And so Satan used his tricks to get Eve to think less of, even poorly, even angrily towards God. He's holding out on you, Eve. You could be like him, but he won't let you be there. As he stirred up this anger within her, he works to get Eve to think that God is holding out on her, thus creating resentment towards God. And I would just have us pause here for a second and to think in our hearts that we really have to be honest in our own hearts with God as well. Because the same thoughts can fill us and lead us astray and cause us not to love God honestly. So what do you think of God? If you're quiet, as Morris asked us to be during our communion time, if you just pause and if you're honest about what are your thoughts towards God, do you ever struggle with disappointment, anger? God, you're not meeting my needs. God, you didn't give me what you gave others. God, you've not answered my prayer the way I wanted it answered. God, I'm mad at you that I can't and fill in the blank. Is there a place in your heart and your thoughts where there is resentment, where there is anger, where there is frustration with God? And I don't want you to feel guilty that those thoughts are there. I want you to own them and I want you to bring them to God because God is not offended by that. In fact, read the Psalms. Half of the Psalms are, are laments or frustrations or angers that God, why aren't you? And God is good with that. And what he's not good with is when I kind of just hide him and I just use the anger to rebel. I use the anger to drive my own pride instead of leading me to humility before God. And so allow Genesis 3 to call you and make you pause and just examine your own thoughts towards God and see if there's any bitterness, resentment towards God. And finally, number four, and this is basically what the next five weeks is going to be. So I'm not going to say much about this. Genesis 3 is a key part of your faith story because it emphasizes our need for a Savior to redeem us. In Genesis 3, you're given the first gospel promise, the first messianic prophecy. In Genesis 3.15, God comes to Satan and says, hey, you're going to nip him on the heel, but his heel, the, the son, the child, the offspring of, of Eve, will eventually crush your head, speaking about Jesus. What did he do on the cross? He crushed Satan. And so there's the first promise, but you also see the first picture of redemption and sacrifice. Adam and Eve try to make for themselves these clothing made out of leaves. Wouldn't last long. They would wilt quickly. But what does God do? He sacrifices an animal and makes coverings for them out of animal skin that would last much longer. Didn't have to do that before he sent them away, but he cares for them. He covers their shame with a sacrifice. And so over the next few weeks, we will see how God does that for us as well. But as you read through Genesis 3, just at least acknowledge that, God, if I put myself in that story, I need that good message. I need the news that Satan crushes, that, excuse me, that Jesus crushes Satan. And I need the good news that, God, you cover my shame. Because in my sin, I still wrestle with the same things. 
believing bad news and allowing my shame to cause me to hide from God. I need good news. Jesus is greater and I need covering because my shame, I can't do anything with. I need forgiveness. I need covering from the Lord. And we very quickly realize that the solutions to our problems in this world with temptation, with sin, with shame will not be found within ourselves. We need help from someone better suited to fix the problem. And that's Jesus. And that's who we'll talk about in these next few weeks. Would you pray with me, please? Our Lord and our God, um, thank you for answers. Thank you for explanations that help us to begin to see, man, why is the world such a messed up place? But that answer is troubling to us because it leaves us in a place of what do we do with a messed up world and messed up souls? God, we can either be prideful and think we can do it ourselves or we can be humble and recognize that we could never fix this on our own. We need the wisdom, the power, the grace, the mercy of Christ to make us whole again. And so, Father, may we live from that place. May our posture be one of, Lord, help us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, change us. And we come and we ask you to do that today. Lord, the darkness of our world, it creeps into our hearts and our lives. And we wrestle with the same things Adam and Eve did. We run away from you because we're ashamed of our sin. And, and we try to blame other people. We don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. But God, in this moment, would we just be honest? Would we be responsible? Would we own who we are and what we have done and where we have been and what we have not been? And Lord, in this moment of humility, and would we find the grace of Jesus who speaks good news and who brings covering for our shame. Lord, forgive us in our pride. Forgive us when we are mere mortals and we try to question and override the plans of God. Give us grace today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.